0: It's a ball out, 8-inning, 10-3. Faces
1: are loaded for Verlander, who waits out a
0: He swings, and it's a high-fly ball. Deep center field. It is gone. Home run. And a huge backflip to celebrate. All right, Ben, start the show already
2: what is up everybody welcome into another episode of flippin bats presented by taco bell and guess what everybody's favorite promotion is back steal a base steal a taco it's back if a player in the world series steals a base america gets to steal a free doritos locos taco i'm pumped about it look two of my favorite things in the entire world baseball tacos so that first stolen base of the World Series is going to be extra special for me. And I can't wait to get that free taco. I love me some Taco Bell. This is perfect. But what is also perfect is this episode we got coming at you. Man, oh man. Some storylines from around the postseason. We got one of the best managers in all of Major League Baseball joining us today. A.J. Hench, current manager of the Detroit Tigers, former manager of the World Series champion Houston Astros. So that is going to be a blast. And then I got some more top fives for you. Top five postseason performers, top five stolen base leaders in the postseason, and top five postseason home runs in my lifetime. All right, well, let's get into it, rounding the bases. And first up, the Atlanta Braves take a commanding three to one series lead over the Dodgers in what was a crucial game. But to understand why this game was so crucial, let's go back to game three for a second. I was there. I was in attendance. I was sitting out in the bleachers. This place during Game 3, Dodger Stadium, was electric. Cody Bellinger, in what seemed to be a blowout game, it was going to be a 5-2, they were five outs away from, from losing, Cody Bellinger comes up and hits the biggest home run of the year for the Dodgers, without a doubt. The former MVP, 2019 MVP, Cody Bellinger, hits The home run of the year. And all the momentum in this series starts to shift. The place is going wild. Beer was being thrown everywhere. It was nuts. So it's a tie ball game. And then who else? Then who else? Mookie Betts comes up, drives in the go-ahead run, makes it a 6-5 to ball game, double in the gap. Of course, it was Mookie Betts. All the momentum. The Braves had it all. They stopped it, and then they took it all. So the Dodgers have all the momentum in the world heading into game four. I sat here last night after game three talking about this momentum and what the Braves need to do going forward. And I said the key for this Braves, for the Braves' next game, is to score early. You have to score early in game four. And they did just that. Back-to-back home runs in the second inning. Rosario, Duvall, that's how you score early, back-to-back home runs. So it's 2-0 pretty quickly. And then you could feel it. All that momentum the Dodgers had, all the momentum that Cody Bellinger got this team, the Braves score early and the crowd's taken out of it. The Dodgers had all the momentum at the plate. That momentum is gone. They had to score early and they did just that. Adam Duvall makes a sick play out there early, and all that momentum is changed. And then this game ends up going on. It's a five-two ball game for a while, um, and and the Braves end up breaking it open. Freddie Freeman hits a huge bomb. Freddie Freeman, by the way, was 0 for seven when the series shifted. O for eight when the series shifted back to LA. 0 for eight with seven strikeouts. I was on the field before game three, and I saw Freddie Freeman. I said hello to Freddie Freeman, and I said, hey, Freddie, good luck. And man, oh, man, did the good luck happen. Look, it's no secret. You come on this show, you come on Flippin' Bats, you have good luck. The Flippin' Bats pod luck is clearly real. Freddie's going to have to come on at some point, but I say good luck to Freddie, and he's back. The former MVP is back. He hits a bomb in this game. In game four, he hits an RBI double down the line. He walks. He had a great game in game three. Freddie Freeman is back. This Braves lineup goes when Freddie Freeman goes. They are way more dynamic when he is doing well. And he did great. He's back. And the Braves take a commanding 3-1 series lead. This was huge. This was so big. The Dodgers have a bullpen game now tomorrow this almost felt like the game was more it wasn't technically do or die for anyone it felt like it was a do or die game for the braves it really did you come in you come back to la up to nothing and then you lose the first one that next one feels do or die you could feel it in the stands you could feel it as this game started if the braves lost tonight if the braves lost game four i mean it, it, feels like, it feels like the series is over, and it's honestly all, only tied up. But this was such a big win, and they came out early. They set the tone, and then they laid it down. So many runs scored late in the game, insurance after insurance. Eddie Rosario having an incredible postseason with a huge bomb in the ninth to make it 9-2. to two. And the Braves end up winning big, taking a commanding 3-1 series lead. Now the Dodgers have to win three in a row. Braves just gotta win one more. Big one. Big game four for the Atlanta Braves. But let's move on to second base and talk about the Houston Astros, who are now in the driver's seat. They win in in big fashion at Fenway Park. They, They win game five by a lot. So this series, in my opinion, is also interesting. Let's take a look back in this series. The Red Sox win game two in grand fashion. And I say grand fashion, meaning it has multiple meanings. They won big, but they also hit multiple grand slams. So they get that split on the road, and then they go home. And they win that next game, that game three, the first game at home, big. This series felt like, look, to be honest with you, it felt like when the Red Sox went up 2-1, to one, that the series was more than, it felt like it had already been asleep. It felt like there was no life. It really did. And then game four happens, and it's a tight game all throughout. Bregman hits a big homer. Altuve hits a big homer. And then Jason Castro, when you think Houston Astros, you think Jason Castro, the Astro, he was the hero of the night. He gets the big RBI two-out knock in the ninth inning, winning them that game four. Tying up the series. And then game five. We look. What Fromber Valdez did in Game 5 could have saved the Astros' season. Their pitching has been, to be quite honest with you, laughable to this point. Their starting pitchers haven't gotten to the third inning. The ERA of the starting pitchers was over 20. Fromber Valdez went out and threw eight innings. Dominated. His sinker was destroying bats. His curveball was electric. This is more than just what the Astros wanted. This is what the Astros needed was that start. And then they tacked on the runs. Jordan Alvarez with a bomb off lefty-lefty off Chris Sale. a Two RBI double down the line. Now the Astros are in the driver's seat. Now they look great. Now this series shifts back to Houston with two games left. The Astros need to win one of those games at home. This offense is now rolling all the momentum in the world. The driver's seat. That's exactly what the Astros are in right now, when all seemed lost. So the Houston Astros, a big win in game five. They win big. They head home with the series lead. Everybody flies to Houston. Can the Red Sox win two there? Sure. Sure they can. Certainly they can. But now they're up against it. When the series was in their favor, now they're up against it. This is a huge one for the Astros. Frommer Valdez, though, wow. The performance of the postseason so far, especially for the Astros. When they needed it the most, that bullpen was depleted. that Nobody was stepping up. He did. What a huge outing for Frommer Valdez and the Houston Astros. But let's head on over to third. I got something I want to talk about at third base. Umpiring. The umpiring. Now, look. I am not in favor of Robo umps I'm not. I don't want it. I don't I don't want it at all. What I do think needs to happen is umpires need to be held accountable. Let's look at let's look at this postseason. I feel like umpires for the last couple of years have been talked about a lot, but let's just specifically focus on this postseason. One that steps out in my mind is the check swing that ended the NLDS between, the Giants, and the Dodgers. Wilmer Flores's check swing that, look, you can't even argue it. He didn't go. He didn't go. It's called a swing, and it ends the series. To me, that right there is unacceptable. One, that call to end a game, you err on the side of no, he didn't, unless it is egregious. No, he didn't swing. You certainly can't end a series like that. And then you see the replay, and it's like, well, he didn't even go. What are you doing? So that's just awful. That can't happen, in my opinion. But that's that, that's not it. You know, there's been multiple calls throughout. Um, and, then, and then, to me, yeah, yeah, another call, which we asked Alex Avila on, who, who was just on the show. Alex Avila came on, and we asked him about that play between the Astros and the White Sox when Yasmani Grandal was running in the baseline. Out of the baseline. He's running in grass. He gets hit. Obviously, we we know how this goes. The run ends up counting. They said there was no interference. They even got together. There's a 100 umpires on the field in the postseason, and not a single one of them can get it right. The guy was running in the grass. Like I said, I have hit a million rollover ground balls in my career. Not a single time did I run in the grass to get to first base. So they made their own call there. These are big turning point calls. But... Let's talk about balls and strikes as well. This is where I I start to lose my mind a little bit. So here's one important thing. There's a strike zone on the screen for all of us fans at home. There's a a box there that we can see perfectly. Those umpires obviously don't have that, that there. They don't get to see it in real time. But consistently throughout a season, we know which umpires are good with balls and strikes and which ones aren't i am here to fix this issue i am here to say that what needs to happen is umpires need to start being held accountable myself personally when i was playing if i did awful over an extended period of time i lost my job umpires who consistently do poorly over the regular season just don't they, they have no repercussions. Laz Diaz was behind the plate in the Astros and Red Sox game, and, and Laz Diaz was one of the worst umpires in baseball all year. I don't blame Las Diaz for not calling balls and strikes correctly in a big game. I just don't think he should have been there in the first place. So so that's what I'm looking at. In, in Game 4, Las Diaz was behind the plate. And, and like I said, I, I don't blame him. There just needs to be... Accountability. Because I'm, I'm tired of seeing big games swung and not just balls and strikes on many calls. I'm tired of seeing big, important games come down to an umpire's ruling. And I get that's the sport, but and, and I'm actually fine with that. As long as it's not happening consistently. And it feels like, especially in this postseason, it is happening consistently. And it is changing the course of big games. It is ending certain series the game five of the NLDS of one of the biggest rivalries in baseball, it's ending on a big, important series. It's, it's allowing runs to score in a big game. It's allowing innings to extend. So, you know, that's what I want to say. That's all I got on this, is I just want umpires to be held accountable and have the best... What I want is the best umpires in baseball to be on the field in the postseason. End of story. That's it. Put the best umpires in the game on the field, in the biggest series of the year, period. I feel like that'd be a great solution. But let's move on to home and and talk about some of these managerial decisions that we've seen in in the postseason. Honestly, first off, hats off to managers in the postseason. Wow. It is incredible just how much, once the postseason starts, all eyes are on them. So one, I'm not going to like criticize anybody. But what, what I do think is that managers in the postseason, when it comes to their bullpen decisions, is, is incredible. It's super stressful, and, and, in my opinion. And I look at some of how, how this has changed over the course of the years. Over the course of the last, it feels like five years, managers are using pitchers differently in the postseason. You know, you have some of the best starters in the game going three innings, and then they're getting pulled when they're not even in, in trouble. You have some of the best starters in the game pitching in the ninth inning in games on their bullpen day. So first off, for those of you that sometimes question those decisions and say like, how, how is that possible, how, like why can't they always do that? So starting pitchers throw every fifth day. In between those starts, they have a bullpen day where they go out and they throw a bunch of pitches in a bullpen. So what managers are starting to do over the last few years is throw those pitchers on their bullpen day in games, in high leverage situations. Now it's not the same. You're you're pitching in in huge stressful situations, but we're starting to see it more and more. Dave Roberts with Julio Urias, and we saw it in the Braves game. Alex Cora with Nate Ivaldi pitching the ninth inning. These decisions are stressful, and in hindsight, it's easy to criticize. But... You know, I I don't always know if they're if they're the right decisions. And look, I look at the I look at Nadia Ivaldi the other night coming in. He's the guy. He's the guy for the Red Sox in the postseason. So I heard Alex Cora talking before you know the the games in Boston started, and he said Ivaldi's going to be available out of the pen for for tonight, and then he's going to start Game Five. Well, guess what? They blew out the Astros in Game Three, and then they didn't end up using him until Game game four in the ninth inning. So you bring him in, and then he he blows it. He blows the lead. So then what? Then you don't have him for game five. And that's what we're seeing more and more, especially this year, is we're seeing managers use that chess piece in high-leverage situations, and then it kind of backfires. And then what do you do? Then, then what do you do? I, I don't know the answer. And a lot of these managers don't know the answer. They play for that moment, and it just seems like we're seeing more and more managers pressing the panic button. I look at Kevin Cash uh, with the Rays in the World Series, pulling Blake Snell when he was dominating, I, and I mean dominating. We didn't ever used to see that. He would keep going, but it's you know it's it's a lot of look. Managing in the postseason is wild. Jock Peterson, who has become one of the heroes in October, Jock Tober, didn't even start the first couple games of the playoffs. And then he pinch hits and hits a couple bombs. And then Brian Snicker is like, I got to play him. I, th- I have to play him. So the, these managerial decisions, look, I, I love postseason baseball. Baseball in October is special. It is incredible because of the passion and excitement we get on the field and in the stands. But there's a whole nother layer that makes this all so exciting. And if you're not paying attention to how these managers are managing these games, you need to. Because it's really cool. It's really special. And, and it's really controlling the outcome of games. Managers are having a big say on postseason baseball to this point. And I'm having a blast watching it, but I, 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 I get stressed thinking about it. I Hats off to them for figuring it out. And who better to talk to right now about all of this? I want to welcome in our guest, one of the best managers in all of baseball, current manager, of the Detroit Tigers. He's a World Series champion. So let's talk to him about all of this and more, AJ hench AJ, thank you so much for joining me, man. Thanks for having me and I, I love the shirt. Nice work. <laughs> That's right. I got a Miggy a Miggy Triple Crown logo on it. It's pretty sick.
0: <laughs> yeah, hey. no doubt. No doubt. So, we need a couple more hits for 3000. He's about to get into some rare air here pretty soon.
2: We're close, man. We're super close. I'm excited for that. Um and'll we'll, I want to talk about that later with you as well. But let's start with the postseason. We're currently in in the middle of the postseason, and it, it just got me to thinking, and I've been thinking about it over the last few days, the job as a manager in the postseason, man. Like it, it seems like all fun and games until you get to the postseason. Is that? It almost seems like it's two different jobs for you. It seems like you're right. a manager in the regular season, and then when you get to the postseason, it's just a totally different job is that true
0: yeah very fair and a a great assessment and and i mean i'm living and dying with all these decisions these guys are making i've been there i've done it i i miss it i mean any manager that's sitting at home right now wishes we were in the agony of of doc roberts (laughs) and brian snicker and dusty and and alex i mean these guys are grinding through their games but the game's different in season versus you know versus the playoffs and and you're seeing it play out probably pretty aggressively now with all these managers are taking their pitchers out you know really really early and that's because once you get into trouble like it's it's stress from the very minute that they get a runner on base and all of a sudden you want to go to the the bullpen a batter too early rather than a batter too late and and then once you open that that door down in the bullpen like it never shuts for the rest of the night you're always chasing matchups and (laughs) Um, you know, some people like it. Some people criticize it. We get judged by the results on whether it's successful or not. But um, it's a different job in season when you're trying to get through 162 versus just win tonight's game, man, and try to get to the next game with a with a you know somewhat of a lead.
2: Yeah, it almost seems like the job in the regular season is about load management, and then when you get to the postseason, it's like all all bets are off. Let's go. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about managing pitching. Like you just touched on in the playoffs, because we're seeing so much of it. And, you know, it almost seems like obviously we're seeing a lot of starting pitchers come in out of the pen, but we can also see it um, a little bit of overmanaging at times and like pushing the panic button. How do you go about managing the pitching in the postseason? And I, I look back on on some of the years where I watched you do it, and it's like, it, it can work out so great and then you can be so judged for it. but how far ahead do you know a game plan and then how quickly can it all be thrown out the window? It just seems like the yeah. most stressful job of all time.
0: Yeah. What's that, what's that Tyson saying? Like everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And that is legitimately <laughs> what managing is like, you know, you go in with a, with a plan and, and obviously depending on your personnel and depending on how, how fresh your guys are, you make determinations on that way. Sometimes you use starters. Sometimes you have a really good bullpen. You gotta you gotta combine what you see with what you know, and audible off of that when something crazy happens. I'm watching it all over in these series where they're trying to get the matchup, and then the matchup doesn't work, and then the next hitter comes up, and the three batter rules playing a really really pivotal p- pivotal role in all this, and the in the bad matchup comes right around the corner. So you know availability is is always discussed prior to the game we'll know what what guys are going to be available what guys aren't the short starts that you're seeing some of that is 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 the result of the pandemic season and and guys are gassed this time it's of year point. and they're they it's different we're it's hard to judge this year's managers on on previous years usage patterns or or how how we used our pitching back in the day uh, but i'm seeing a lot of you know early calls to the bullpen chasing matchups and the teams that are balanced you look at what Atlanta can do to you you look at what Houston can do to you what what Boston can do to you LA I mean, these teams that are left they, they are matchup free it doesn't matter whether you bring in a righty or lefty Freddie Freeman's going to be really good right you bring a righty or lefty Jordan Alvarez is going to be really good and so when as a manager when you look across the way you better pay keep one eye on what's going on and what you see out on that field combined with all this research that you have prior and the balance and the blend and the, and the feel during the game is still going to win out in, in the end, no matter what um, sort of the, the brain trust thinks of that. You need to follow a script. I, I'm not sure that's that's as possible as people want it to be.
2: Yeah. Speaking of pulling starters early, um, we, we saw it the other day. Max Scherzer in the series against the Giants is pulled after like three and a third. He's pissed about it. He, Dave Roberts comes out. He goes to shake his hand instead of giving him the ball. We're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing the plug pulled early. A question I have for you is when you have a guy on the mound like a Max Scherzer who's a stud or in this instance, my brother, do you have any instances sure. of going out on the mound when my brother did not want to come out of the game where you had to say <laughs> something? Tell me a funny story about having to pull him out of the game. Oh my god. Well, first off, I don't
0: think I went to the mound with J V and I was just given the ball freely. Like there's always a one mark, smart ass remark, smart-ass remark a, a a one-liner on the way off the mound. Like it's never easy. And you know, I had Garrett on that staff, Garrett Cole and Zach Grenke and you know, Keiko McCullers, like we had Charlie Morton. We had great starting pitching during my time in Houston. And you know, JV, JV was, you know, we I took him out one time against the against the Angels. Uh, because Shohei Ohtani had crushed him and, and, and has continued to, to hit him pretty well throughout that season. And I took him out, and I brought in Tony Sipp to face Ohtani. Ohtani walks, and then and Andrelton Simmons was right behind him and hits a bases-clearing double. So JV's runs get cashed in. Shohei, Shohei scores, which is Tony Sipp's issue. Um, JV goes from having the win to the loss. And, of course, when he's going by the clubhouse, you got to walk by the manager in order to get to the door of the clubhouse. And he's like, "Hey, man, I'll let you know the next time I'm ready to come out of the game." <laughs> and so we go down <laughs> underneath, and we start yelling at one another, and, and telling each other to shut up, and and, uh, and and just two competitors that are trying to get it right. But taking your brother out, you know, ranks right up there with taking Garrett Cole out uh, as the two toughest guys because you know not only just their their approach and their demeanor and their and their and their stature in the game, but like their stuff's usually better than what the guys are that I'm bringing in, right. in out of the bullpen. No disrespect to the relievers. Um, third time through doesn't, doesn't, doesn't factor in when you're talking about a Verlander or Cole or, or guys like that. So um, it's, it's a long walk and it's a short conversation when you get out on the mound with the big boys.
2: (laughs) Oh God, that's great. And not surprising at all. Um, Hey, so what do you think is, is the most difficult part of managing in the postseason? You've done it so many times if if you were to find one thing because obviously we've talked about the pitching it could be that but if you had to pinpoint one thing what's the most difficult part about managing in the postseason
0: um well the the ramifications of every decision that you make are multiplied so you know obviously during the season you hate to lose a game because you did or didn't do something in the playoffs it's it's tenfold so but but the, the biggest issue that you have as a manager is you can make a good decision and have it not work out. Um, it, it, every decision that doesn't work out doesn't make it a bad decision as far as process goes. Results-wise, yeah, it sucks. Every time you, you you make a move and you bring in a, a guy and he gives up a homer or you intentionally walk a guy and the next guy gets a base hit, like those are all huge decisions along the way in trying to get to the finish line and get to 27 outs. Your process could be perfect and your decision-making could be perfect and the results don't have to follow. In the playoffs, when every every win is is magnified, every loss is magnified. That roller coaster, trying to get a team through a wild card win or a, a division series, a five game series, or a seven game series in the AL NLCS, all the way to the World Series. Like I've been through all of them. When the decisions that you make don't work, that feeling in your stomach doesn't go away for a really long time.
2: Do you have a decision and and you said all these decisions are amplified. Do you have a decision that you made in the playoffs that ended up working out but in the moment you were like, "Oh boy, here we go. This is either going to really work or it's really going to backfire." Can you pen, can you remember one specific thing that sticks in your mind?
0: Yeah, well the 2017, you know, ALDS, we're in Boston in game 4 and it's raining. And and so we, I was scheduled. Justin you know, JV was going to schedule, was scheduled to pitch in game five, but I had Dallas Keuchel on full rest that was in game five too. So your brother and I talked about him coming in relief. And but the rain forecast was really uh, murky, and and so Charlie Morton started the game, and 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 they had their guys starting the game, and Chris Sale went down to the bullpen halfway through. And, and if you're me in the other dugout, I had Alex Cora as my bench coach, and we're sitting here saying, if they're sending Sale down there, then they know the weather better than we do. They're planning on it not raining. They're not going to burn Chris Sale, who was going to be their game five starter in the middle of game four. So we get JV down there and send him out there. And, and I remember taking Charlie Morton out and saying, we, we had a lead. And I, I'm, I turned to AC and Brent Strom and I'm like, hey, you know, I know all I know is JV won't give up a homer. And I walk out to the mound and I get the ball from Charlie Morton and I hand it to Justin to face Ben Attendee. And what does Ben Attendee do? He I remember, slips the slider, well. <laughs> he hangs it, he gets a homer. And we go from having the lead to not having the lead, and my Game Five starter, who who is you know, an incredible pitcher in Justin Verlander, is now is now spent, and we're down. Now your brother went on to pitch a couple innings, scoreless. We end up coming back and beating Craig Kimbrel. We clinch in Fenway. Dallas Keuchel can now start uh, the first game of the next series. So it worked out in the end because our <laughs> offense. You know, Bregman hits a homer off Sale. Uh, I think Gaddis and Carlos Beltron end up getting big hits off of Kimbrel. We end up we end up winning the game. So that decision ended up working out. But at the moment I'm like a one pitch in, I'm like, man, I just <laughs> I just blew an entire series by making one decision and jinxing him saying he's never gonna give up a Homer, not to Ben attendee. Boom, Homer, full side
2: oh brutal. god i i remember that game well because i saw him i i saw him warming up and then but i was like you know i i don't know if he'll end up coming in and then the broadcast is like and here comes justin verlander and i yelled and here comes justin oh my god it was crazy <laughs> and then you end up winning yeah. that game and go ahead
0: no and i was just saying that and it didn't and it didn't work like obviously at the <laughs> beginning it's use your guys and you know, I've gone through a lot of these, like Game Seven in 2019 with Garrett Cole not using him and pulling Granky and Howie Kendrick hits the foul pole, Oppo, um, something he hadn't done the entire season. Like these decisions that we we all assume that the other decision would have worked, and that's agonizing as a manager because you know the decision that you made if it doesn't work, everybody just assumes in the world that if you'd made a different decision, it would have worked out. Oh yeah, the other decision would have gone. Worked. <laughs> perfectly fine and we have no idea that how to how to test that but um you know again these these roller coaster rides i love how the managers are um you know are are staying under control but yet i know what's going on inside their their, so, their minds and in their stomachs it's churned
2: yeah so you talked about that that boston series where you guys clenched on the road and then um you know it, it there's been a theme with this Astros team, we just saw them win a big game in Fenway again, and are now heading back home with the lead. What is it about this Astros team that has now been to five consecutive ALCSs, which is insane, by the way, yeah. that it almost seems like even dating back to 2017 and in 2019, when when you went on the road and won every game in Washington, what is it? about this Astros team that is so good going on the road and winning in the opposing team's ballpark?
0: Yeah, they, I mean, they're, they're really grown up. I mean, they, they believe it. They, it started in 2015. I'll never forget this core group of players and it included Springer and and a couple other names that, that aren't on the team anymore, but the Altuve and Correa uh, specifically, when they go to 2015, go to Yankee Stadium, as sort of an upstart team, we weren't expected to make the playoffs that year. They hadn't been a playoff team in 10 years. We make the playoffs, go to the Yankee Stadium and we're staring at, you know, at Alex Rodriguez and, and we're staring at Brian McCann and we're staring at just monsters across the way of, of, of the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium and we went in and jumped on him and beat him in the wild card game. And we lost that to the eventual World Series champions of Kansas City Royals on the road in Game 5 when Johnny Cueto dealt and the fans were oh, going yeah. bananas in Kansas City. That really started a, a, a hunger and a thirst for being in the league. And in 16, we, we, you know, get eliminated the last weekend. 17, obviously, the World Series run. 18 to the ALCS, get beat by the eventual champions in Boston Red Sox. 19 go to game 7 of the world series and and just a few outs away uh, from closing that out but all along the way that experience matters and and you can yeah. see it and feel it you look at what Carlos Correa is doing you look at what is doing Bregman these guys have played 60 70 games in the playoffs now they're you know I used to think back when Derek Jeter was having a full season of at bats just in the postseason throughout his career. <laughs> and that's what these guys are building, and that's why they're comfortable in the month of October.
2: Yeah, I mean, these Correa, Bregman, Gurriel, and, and Bregman have played more postseason games than any sport teammates in the history of baseball, which is insane. And, and you talked about it in 2015, when these guys were so young and, and at the time, you know, building something special. This Astros team built something special from not a lot, from not much, and weren't very good. Now you're with the Tigers, and it almost feels AJ like there's something similar going on there. You know, you take over when this team's really young yeah. and coming off of a rough year, but you're starting to see signs. Can you can you see similarities between that Astros from from the beginning and this Tigers team?
0: Sure. No, I mean that's one of the reasons you take the job. If, if you look at the with the Tigers and where they've been. Um, it hasn't been pretty and and the 100 loss seasons and the rebuild and the top draft picks and some of those are guys are starting to get to the big leagues now and some are going to come, you know, most likely early next year when you talk about Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green. And th- this team is probably a little bit more weighted towards the pitching prospects and of the high end pitching prospects, whereas the Astros were a little bit more built around uh, the young, the young position players. Uh, but you're starting to see things turn the corner the key thing that we did in houston and that we're hopefully to to do in in detroit is surround that young core with some guys that know how to win it it wasn't until Yuli guriel came around and his history in the international market playing in cuba for all those years you go get a michael brantley um, you go get a justin verlander you go get a garrett cole i mean we made a lot of acquisitions in in uh in houston that really supplemented that young core group and we're going to try to do that now the first thing that you have to do is you have to start to believe that you're a winning franchise. We had a winning record since I think may 8th um, this season that I'm very proud of. You know, yeah. we didn't have all winning months and we didn't really blow and blow the, a month out of the water and, and have that, that run of success. But we felt like what it, what it felt like to be a winning team and a contending team. We had a winning record against playoff teams. We had a uh, season series wins against a lot of really good teams. That belief that happened in Houston, Is starting to happen now in detroit and that that's what excites me about the future Uh, but we're just getting started and we got a lot of work ahead to uh, to get to where these guys are at now
2: you know and and this is a big credit to you but I, i had a few tigers on throughout the year one specific sticks out to me is michael fulmer who i talked to him about what you have meant to this organization and basically what he said was that we just believe we can win like it's just this new belief that that we're gonna win games and and like you just said, it seems like that's a culture you try and build. Like I don't care who we're putting out there, we're gonna win, and and this is gonna be a winning culture for a long time. So credit to you, your players are already feel it. No, I, 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 and that means the world to I me. Mean, if you're a
0: manager and your players are are using your terminology and are using your approach <laughs> and they're using your, you know, your methods, I mean, that's the biggest sort I mean, way to compliment the manager and the coaching staff is. Is to emulate them and 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 believe with them. And uh, I've got a great coaching staff here, great players. We've really built a nice little foundation, but now we got to build the house and we got to build the, the the ability to to win our division. We we know who we're looking up at, you know. Right now, it's the Chicago White Sox and the Cleveland Indians. We finished third this season, um, so that that's the challenge ahead. And and who doesn't want to play in these October games? It's incredible.
2: Hey, you mentioned you've you've laid the groundwork. You've now done that in multiple locations. How hard is it to build that groundwork? How hard is it to build that culture that you want so badly for your organization to have?
0: Yeah, I mean it's a challenge just because it's all new when you when you get to a place. Now I've been fortunate to go to a couple different places and and have some buy-in from the very beginning. Um, a little easier coming into Detroit and 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 bringing a you know listen when I when I got there, first thing I did is hire a coaching staff that had some pedigree. George Lombard had won a World Series with the Dodgers. Chris Feder had had his winning ways at the University of Michigan. And Chip Hale is coming off of the, um, the 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 World Series with the Washington Nationals. Scott Coolball had coached some of the best hitters, Nelson Cruz and Manny Machado. Jose Cruz Jr. who we hired and he's now left and gone to Rice. Um, you know was a was a 30-30 player in the big leagues. These guys were credential guys that that instilled a lot of belief in our players and um, and to me, I thought that resonated well with building that culture when the coaching staff was so cohesive and the coaching staff was all credentialed. And we we had stories to tell. I mean, if you're Akil Badu and you're listening to George Lombard in the outfield talk about Mookie bets, you think you're listening? I, cause I think you are. You know, I think it matters to Akil Badu and 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 Robbie Grossman and, and others that that uh, on the experience that, that George had with Mookie. I,
2: I know how analytical the Astros organization was and and how much they bought in and paid attention and did a lot analytically and I also you know I played in the Tigers organization for five years and know that for a while they they weren't there and I know the the head of that organization has been saying you know we know we were behind analytically we we want we want to get there we want to improve there coming from the Astros and now being with the Tigers how, how has that been for you going from one to another and have the, where are the tigers analytically?
0: Yeah, I think the tigers are a little undersold with where they're at analytically. I, I think this has been going on for a couple of years and I think we're trying to maximize it now in the dugout um, and with some of our decision making. But, um, you know, even with Houston, you know, I think Houston was the forefront of a lot of things, um, you know, in, in R and D a lot of things of you know, some progressive ways to do things. And, you know, I know I got a lot of attention for not intentionally walking somebody until the world series. when I did to Juan Soto one, you know, 19. And there's decision-making that, that evolves that you can tell is a little bit more analytically driven and than, than maybe your gut feel. Uh, but the answer is somewhere in the middle. And, and we've, we've found the right balance. Um, I think in, in Detroit, there is some, some old school in us. Uh, there's also some new school in us. They're, you know whether it's terminology or technology or or the the, the way we're going to coach, uh, we've had a few changes over the last few years that um, I know excite a lot of people. That we're we're kind of fast forwarding our, our analytics department. Jay Sartori does a really good job head in our R and D department and is one of our assistant GMs. And the infrastructure has been here. I think the application I'm trying to use and fast forward a little bit more in our decision making. You know in the in the dugout but you can't lose sight of of how to balance it whenever you're the major league manager it it's important to to um to find that happy medium sometimes i lean more on analytics sometimes i lean more a little bit on 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 what i feel and what i know about our club um the answer's in the middle
2: i feel like and and what you just mentioned you know i was i was talking to my brother earlier and actually um, we were talking about how I was going to talk to you today. And, and one thing he mentioned is like how you don't get always caught up in, in, in just the analytics. You also have this perfect balance of like the feel to it. And I think that's what's like so special is there is a balance of analytics as well as, look, this, there's just a feel that you can't get analytically to the game of baseball. And I think that's a cool, um, a, a cool balance to have for sure. But you, you also mentioned AJ, that the pitching staff, and I do want to talk to you about this young pitching staff because it was fascinating watching you this year, manage them, especially, you know, you got Mize, Scooble, Manning. I mean, these guys are studs, um, but they're really young. And for a while, all we did was here with the Tigers, the future's close. These pitchers are going to be good. And, And now they're here. They're getting that experience, which how, how valuable is that experience? But also, how did you manage them this year, especially the second half of the year? It seemed like Mize would go out and dominate, as he mostly did all year, but you'd pull them sometimes after the, the third inning. Um, how, how, did, how did you manage this staff this year?
0: Yeah, I mean, communication's key, and I think getting the most out of them was number one. And, and you know, I think one, one valuable attribute of a coach, and Chris Fetter has this, I think I have this, George Lombard, others on our staff, you got to be a good listener to be a good coach. And the players are going to have an opinion. The players are going to have a, a, a vote in this deal, uh, and you have this open communication throughout the year on this is how this is where you need to get get to to be successful. And here are some concrete examples on how we can we can help you get there. It's not a cookie cutter program. Casey Mize is different than Tarek Scupple, who's different than Matt Manning. Different skill sets, different interpersonal skills, different learning styles, different different attitudes. All great guys, super tight. I think they went on vacation right after the season, um, all together. Like they're super tight knit group. That's great. But to get the best version of them, you got to do things a little bit differently. And some of that, there were some hard lessons there. There were some times where, you know, I had to let them get beat up a little bit in order to teach them a lesson. There were other times that I took the ball away from them and said, no this isn't this isn't your night, and we're gonna we're gonna cut it short. Um, we wanted them to make every start that they could this season. We thought that was important. Uh, we did limit their innings, but we challenged them from the very beginning that if if we get our pitching right, we have a chance to win every night in any given game against any given opponent. Yeah. And watching Casey Mize go into the seventh against the, you know, the the Chicago White Sox, or and and ultimately, you know, taking it on the chin in the seventh inning, but that valuable experience of having the ball in your hand with the game on the line is going to matter to him when we're in these games, one of these October's. And we're, and we're facing somebody with the season on the line. Um, Tarek Skubal punching out the world. I mean, this season, I think he set a Tiger <laughs> rookie record for how many punch-outs that he had. Matt Manning coming up, knowing he probably was there a little bit early uh, and having to face his first opponent was the the, the, the Angels, and you had Shohei Otani in the, in the middle of his incredible season, and he's leading off against Matt Manning. He's, I think he's the first hitter that you face. Like, those experiences <laughs> are invaluable. The messaging behind it, is, is very critical. Chris Feder Juan Nieves, our pitching guys deserve a lot of credit for getting them mentally focused on what game plan to use. And then for me, I took the ball out of their hand or I left the ball in their hand based on their performance because that matters.
2: AJ, have you ever seen anything like what Shohei Otani did this year? I know he's the first batter Matt Manning has to face as a big leaguer. And obviously I, I know no, you haven't seen anything like him because nobody has. But talk a little bit about Shohei Otani and the year he had this year and how difficult it was managing against him. It was impossible, first off. We caught him when
0: we went to, to Anaheim. Um, it, he was right in the only one player of the week, and we were probably responsible for that. I think he homered three or four times <laughs> in a four-game series. He pitched six or seven innings and any and one player of the week. That was no-brainer that week against us. So when he came to our place... Um he also pitched six or seven, I think, or maybe seven or eight. I think he could have gone nine innings. And Joe pulled um conserving his pitch count. he went eight innings against us, but also hit one um up on the deck in right field past the whole stadium. So we saw close and personal what this, what this guy can do. And uh, I, I was amazed by him. I know there's a big debate on who should be the MVP. Um I, I don't know how you go against anything but Shohei Otani, and I love Vlad Jr. And there are probably other guys, even Marcus Simeon, who um, had an incredible season. But Shohei did things that need to be recognized in the record books for and some hardware next to it for being a, an elite performer in every aspect. You want to talk about stealing bases? He stole a couple bases against everybody. Talk about throwing shutouts. It's 94 to 99 with a devastating split. <laughs> you want power? He's going to hit ball out of the stadium. Uh, the fact that nobody else can do that in the same season, I think, marks him as an MVP.
2: For sure. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And and you mentioned that one game in Detroit. By the way, he threw eight. But one thing I remember is that Miguel Cabrera almost got his 500th against him. Flew out to the track out there in right field. I want to. What has Miguel Cabrera meant to this young team and and uh, so many young guys coming up that haven't even really been here for that long? What has Miguel Cabrera meant to the culture of this Tigers organization?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously his history in this organization has been well documented and he's going to he's going to go into the Hall of Fame as a Tiger and um, he's incredible. And I, and I didn't really know what to expect when I got here. I've, I've been around veteran guys. I've been around star players. Um, I've been around guys that are gonna be in the Hall of Fame. And, you, you know, you kind of you develop a relationship slowly with those players and get them to trust you and get them to understand that you have his best interest. I, I challenge them to play first base. Um, you know, upwards of 40 or 45 times. And I wanted him to do that because I felt like having him on the field mattered. It mattered to him. It mattered to, to our team, to the energy of our team. I wanted to keep him healthy, so I gave him days off. Um, and he responded with, with one of the best attitudes you can have on a, on a, a building team. I don't even want to call it a rebuilding team, but a building team trying to win. Uh, Miggy bought in and he did everything we asked. If we had early work, he went out for early work. If we had extra hitting, he went out for extra hitting. When he when we had our hitters meetings and he had something to say, um, he participated in those. And you don't get that out of everybody in the big leagues. You know, you don't get that kind of influence out of everybody. And I think the winning months in the in the winning environment in the, and the and the promise of what's ahead really ignited a little youthfulness in Miggy, the 500 homer chase. He's getting close to 3,000. You know, we celebrated with him in the Toronto clubhouse when he hit the 500th homer. Um, it just to me, it was a it was a successful season for Miggy, going wire to wire, playing more first base than he played in the last four or five years, contributing on the field a tick better than I think people expected, um, and his youthfulness really did you know rub off on our young players.
2: Hey AJ, how cool was it being in the dugout when he hit number 500? I know I grew up watching him. I grew up being in the clubhouse with them. It was an emotional day for me just seeing it happen. How cool was it being a yeah. part of it?
0: Yeah, it was cool because I, you know, it was controversial for me first off, because I, he was smoking hot in Baltimore and he did his 499. <laughs> we had a day game the next day. So I go to the, to the, to the media room, the zoom room. And I talk to the media and I'm like, "Miggy's going to play tomorrow. And I, you know, we're going to, we're going to keep pressing forward. We're not going to test the baseball gods. And then I walk in. And in Baltimore, it's a small clubhouse, small training room. It's after midnight because we had a rain delay and we played till after midnight. We have a noon or tw- 1 o'clock game the next day. And Miggy's in the cold tub. And I'm like, I got a 38-year-old dude, Hall of Famer potential, that that is in a cold tub after midnight. And I'm going to ask this guy to play. So I go up to Miggy and I'm like, hey, man, you're not going to play tomorrow. We're gonna, We're going to get this thing at home. So he sits the next day. I got everybody behind me that bought tickets and screaming at me, telling me they want (laughs) the 50 bucks back. They want, they want me. We want the chance of we want Miggy. We end up winning that game. We go home for a seven or eight game homestand and Miggy doesn't homer. And it was the standing room only in right field. The fans (laughs) are packing the house at Comerica and he's not hitting it. So when we get to Toronto, it wasn't that I'd let my guard down, but like I wasn't thinking Homer every single time that he went up there. He had only homered like once every 15 games anyway. And so it it still caught me by surprise because it was an oppo homer off of Steven Matz that off the bat, it's sure double, but that tall wall in right field, you don't know if it's going to carry. And then when it disappears behind the, the fence, our whole dugout erupts. So even though we knew that he was one away, the gap between 499 and 500 kind of allowed us to let our guard down a little bit so that we could all enjoy the moment emotionally and and jump up and down with them and his biggest smile on his face, um, happened, I mean, it was in a win, you know. We won the game, and which matters, you know, when you when you're when you're trying to do things right. And then we had a nice little toast in the clubhouse and 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 tipped some cha- champagne for him for a uh, exclusive list of 500 homers.
2: And there was a there was a curtain call on the road, correct? That happened. Yeah, yeah. That's wasn't simple. that cool?
0: The Toronto fans were incredible. I mean, obviously, and Stephen Mas. Who let us have the moment? You know, obviously very respectful of Miggy, and, and nobody wanted to be that dude that gave <laughs> gave up the homer. And <laughs> that that video will be shown forever now, and and the crowd was was erupting. Miggy comes out, tips his hat. The Canadian fans were unbelievable. Some Tiger fans that had come in in town as well. We all had that moment. And by the way, it was a close game. Like I said, we won the game, and we needed that homer in order to to, to get back into the game and and come back to win. So. Uh, You know, when you look back, the Blue Jays end up, you know, not making the playoffs by a game or two. Uh, And maybe it was Miggie's homer that that, that, that could have been the deciding factor for the playoffs
2: for them. Um, AJ, before I let you go, I I have to ask you about these guys because for so long we've heard for the Tigers, um, the pitching is near, the pitching is close, and the the pitching is here. Now we're hearing the hitting is close. The hitting is near. These young guys, Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, they're close, and I, I know they're studs. Um, I, I got to talk to them at the Futures game. I watch what they do. These guys are studs. So I don't want to ask you when, when the timeline is, but at, at some point next year, I'm assuming we'll see these guys. And how excited are you to have them as part of this culture in Detroit?
0: Yeah, I'm excited. They were in big league camp last year, and, and so we got a chance to see them up close and personal, learn a little bit more about them. Um, I love their makeup. I love their determination. You know they're pretty hard on themselves in their first big league camp they wanted to have like a big impression and and they made impressions that they don't even know they made yet they think the box score is going to give the impression and that's not that's not the case but um there are real players and real contributors I, we need to surround them with guys where they don't have to be the dudes right out of the gate but when you're looking at at, at, at what makes a young hitter ready um part of it is the swing mechanics and part of it is their skill set and their power and the repeatability, but a lot of it is in their is in their stomach and their head. Like do they have the heart and the stomach and the head to handle the pressure that comes with it? I think these guys have it and I think they're gonna thrive because I think they're gonna arrive around the same time. Another young player, Ryan Kreidler, Dylan Dingler. There's some guys that are starting to come up that have played together and won in A ball. They've played together and won in double A. They've played together and won in Triple A or AAA won the their division this season. They didn't have the playoffs, but Um, To me, I think those experiences are going to make them very comfortable when they arrive in the big leagues and they're ready to help us.
2: AJ, speaking of guys that want to help and want to win, look, I got my Tigers 32 jersey right here behind me. I know I was released a few years ago, but now you're in charge. If there's ever a time to get me back in the game, just know that I'm ready.
0: Hey, I've seen the video. I've seen the homer (laughs) in in the spring training game, so I know know you got popped.
2: Yeah, that was probably the furthest home run of my career, to be honest. And one of the only oppo ones, too. I got him pretty good. AJ, thank nice. you so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the Tigers in the future. The future is so bright. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Of course. See yeah. ya. All right. And thanks again to AJ Hench for joining me. What an incredible manager. One of the best in the league. This Detroit Tigers future is bright. And a large part of that is because of him. But let's get into some top fives that we've been doing. These are a lot of fun. We're going to head on over here and start with an updated top five postseason performers so far this postseason. So I'm going to bring Conrad back out here, and
1: let's start with number five. Number five, we have Jordan Alvarez.
2: Yeah, Jordan's hitting 367 with eight RBIs, eight walks. This guy is a staple of this lineup. He's not even one of the guys you think of. When you think Houston Astros, You think about those infielders. You think Correa, Bregman, Gurriel, Altuve. But having this big lefty in the middle of the lineup, he totally took over game five of this series for the Astros. He dominated with the lefty-lefty bomb off of Chris Sale with the two-RBI double down the line. He's been doing it all postseason. Jordan Alvarez is a stud and a big reason why the Astros had that commanding lead in their series.
1: Number four. Eddie Rosario.
2: Eddie Rosario, look, this Eddie Rosario is was a toss-up on this list heading into Game Four of this Brave series. It was kind of, who do I want here? It could be Rosario, it could be Jock Peterson. <laughs> this became an easy one for me. Eddie Rosario, who hit two bombs in Game Four, wins. Honestly, ends up with a bunch of RBIs. He's hitting 467. On the postseason with two bombs, eight RBIs, two of those bombs coming in Game 4. What a performance from him in Game 4. And what a performance all postseason to this point. So certainly got to be on this list. Eddie Rosario.
1: Number three, Carlos Correa.
2: Correa, man, clutch. What time is it? It's been Correa time this whole postseason. Three twenty-four. Four extra base hits, five RBIs, that huge clutch bomb, which is where we saw the bat drop, the time thing, the run to first base. It was awesome. When you think some of the most clutch players in postseason history, Carlos Correa is now on that list. What he's doing for the Astros in this postseason is incredible. This man is about to get paid. I'm telling you that, but he's on this list at number three.
1: Pay that man. Number two, Mookie Betts.
2: Just, it does not matter the year that Mookie Betts has. You know he's always going to be good, but you know when it turns October, Mookie Betts is going to become Mookie Betts. 368 on the postseason, five RBIs, five stolen bases, leading all of baseball in the postseason in stolen bases, playing great defense. This guy does it all. Mookie Betts does it all. He's one of the best players in, in all of baseball. And when it becomes October, he takes over. He takes over for, for the Red Sox when it was the Red Sox and now doing it for the Dodgers. This guy's a stud. It's October. Mookie Best shows
1: up, plain and simple. Number one, Kike Hernandez. <laughs> this
2: one, he, he's locked. I feel like he's locked in for, for number one for, for a while now. He's batting 422, five home runs, nine RBIs I said this the other day I truly believe the Astros need to start treating Kike Hernandez like he's Barry Bonds that's not saying Kike Hernandez is Barry Bonds because nobody is but right now he's the hottest hitter on the planet and you need to pitch around him there's nobody that's been better he's also been playing great defense the Red Sox brought in Kike Hernandez to play second base he's now a star out in center field, playing good defense, and absolutely raking, 422. Incredible. So, Conrad, let's get to our next list, which is top five
1: postseason home runs in in my life since I've been alive. All right. Coming number five, king of the bad flips, Jose Batista. Jose
2: Batista. Batista, who doesn't remember this one? And this one, to me, is on the list because, one, it was a huge home run in this game against the Rangers and the ALDS. But more than that, this show is called Flippin' Bats. We love bat flips here. This right here is the home run that put bat flips back on the map. Not only was it a bat flip, it was a bat chuck. He threw it. It was incredible. It was electric. The Rogers Center in Toronto was going insane. This home run, is one that when I think of postseason home runs, my mind immediately goes to this one. So it's certainly on the list, and we got him at number five.
1: Come in at number four, Aaron Boone. The Aaron
2: Boone home run. How can you not have this on a list? I mean, walk off, The it was a game seven against the Red Sox. Pedro Martinez was on the mound in that 2003 ALCS game. They, they were down 4 nothing in that game, and then they come back against all odds and Aaron Boone walks it off for the New York Yankees. Look, this one happened in 2003. I remember this one vividly. I remember where I was watching it. I feel like that's that's going to be a theme with ones on this list. You remember where you were when this happened? And certainly with Aaron Boone's, I remember where I was when I saw this walk-off home run happen.
1: Number 3, Big Poppy David Ortiz. I was in the stands for this one.
2: Grand slam against the Detroit Tigers, Joaquin Benoit. It was a one nothing series at that point with the Tigers leading the way. And there was a big lead for the, for the Tigers in this game when Poppy comes up. Big Poppy, one of the best postseason hitters in the history of this game. Hits a grand slam. I was in the stands for this. It is burned into my retina. Torrey Hunter runs back. Flips over the outfield wall. The bullpen cop with his hands in the air. Big poppy round in the bases. Fenway Park going nuts. It changed the course of this series. It looked like it was going to be 2-0 Tigers with my brother on the mound in game three. It looked like this was the Tigers series until that big poppy home run. This one, Conrad, isn't tough to remember where I was when this happened because I was a few rows up and saw it firsthand. So this one's definitely on the list. Number
1: two. Jose Altuve,
2: Jose Altuve, uh, walk off. Look, this is a walk off home run to send your team to the World Series against the best closer in baseball. What more? What more could you ask for? I, you know, growing up, you, I don't know about you, but I emulated these situations. You know, game seven. This was game six to go to the World Series. Can you hit a home run? Altuve did it off of the best closer in baseball. I was also there for this one. This one sent my brother to the World Series. It doesn't get that much more special, especially for me. I was there, I saw it happen. Jose Altuve, a bombing, it's the best closer in baseball. 2019 ALCS, that was a special one, Conrad. That was really, really cool, and that's at number two on my list.
1: Yep, coming in at number one. Joe Carter. Yeah, this one
2: just squeaks in for the timeline of since I've been alive, but it does. And this one is special for so many reasons. Look, this walked off the World Series. It was game six of the 1993 World Series. And when you talk about what you dream of as a kid, this is it. This is what you dream of. He hits the walk-off home run, and then he was jumping around the bases. Remember that, Conrad? Yeah, He was jumping around the bases. It was incredible. He missed first base. He had to run back and tag it. I've emulated this home run so many times in my life. When I think postseason home runs, there's one that stands out above all else, and it is Joe Carter's 1993 Game 6 World Series homer to win the Blue Jays the World Series. I like this list. This is a fun list. But speaking of lists, this one is my favorite of the day. Taco Bell, top 5 postseason stolen base leaders. And it leads me right into it. This is my favorite promotion of all time. Taco Bell is our sponsor here, and Steal a Base, Steal a Taco is back. If a base is stolen in the World Series, America gets to steal a free Doritos Locos Tacos. No purchase necessary. Limit one per person while supplies last. Visit tacobell.com slash steal dash a dash taco for details when I think of stolen bases one a guy that comes to mind one is Mookie Betts who's leading all of the postseason right now in stolen bases he's a dynamic player stealing a bases stealing a base is a reason for for being a dynamic player it's so important to steal a base you look at Mookie he gets on base The pitchers don't know what to do. The pitchers start freaking out. They start speeding up the game. You get into scoring position if you steal second base. Look, we just saw it in the game between the Braves and the Dodgers. Dansby Swanson steals second base. Late in the game, he gets into scoring position. And then the next batter, Freddie Freeman, hits a ground rule double that doesn't score the runner unless he steals that base. I can't stress how important stealing bases are and everything is amplified in the postseason. So getting into scoring position in the postseason is impressive. So that's why I wanted to do this list, which is top five postseason base stealers
1: of all time. So Conrad, let's start with number five. Number five, you can see right there, that man Mookie Betts. We were just talking about him. Would you look at that? Look at it. (laughs) Mookie
2: Betts. Uh, one of the one of the best postseason, and, and this happens because he's seemingly in the postseason every year. Is that a coincidence? No, it's not, because he's one of the best players in baseball. But there's a different level to Mookie Betts. He's dynamic. He can hit, he can hit the ball out of the yard, he can get on base, he can take his walks, he can play great defense. But another thing that he can do is steal bases. And it is So important in the postseason. We see it time and time again. Mookie Best is on this list at number five.
1: Number four, Lou Brock.
2: Lou Brock. Look, Lou Brock is one of the best stolen base leaders of all time, not not even including the playoffs. But he was on those teams with the Cardinals. They were really good. And he was in the postseason a lot in in the 70s, late 60s, in the 70s. This guy you, you can't have a stolen base list without him being on it. And he I, I obviously wasn't around to see the bases, but I know for a fact that he was really good. One of the best stolen bases guys of all time and also played in the postseason a lot. So that's why he's on this list of postseason base dealers.
1: Yep. in number three, might have heard of this guy, uh, Derek Jeter.
2: I've heard of him. I have, I have heard of him. The captain, number two, Derek Jeter. Look, when when I think of Derek Jeter, first off, I think one of the best pure hitters. He's such a pure hitter. Think of the other way. But what we what we don't realize, or, or at least think about, is how many how many times he stole bases in the playoffs. He's not the fastest guy in the world, but it, it's not all about speed to steal a base. And that's what we're going to see in this upcoming World Series, where hopefully we all win free tacos. But what we're going to see is it's not all about speed. Jeter wasn't the fastest guy in the world, but he had it figured out. He had it figured out how to steal a base. He was in the postseason, obviously, a ton with that New York Yankees team. They were seemingly in it every single year, and he was on base quite a bit, and he was able to steal bases and get into scoring position and get his team into a position to win a bunch of games and win a bunch of World Series. So the captain, Derek Jeter, number three on this list.
1: Coming in number two, one of my personal favorites... Kenny Lofton. Kenny Lofton, the all-time
2: leader in postseason stolen bases. It's funny you say that. I love Kenny Lofton, too. Kenny Lofton is great, and he was a great postseason stolen base guy. And and look, he. this is one of those guys, we've talked about these other guys on this list that kind of do it all. Kenny Lofton obviously does it all, but when I think Kenny Lofton, I think this guy's going to get on base, and this guy's going to steal, and he's going to be safe. He leads all of Major League Baseball history and postseason stolen bases, and that's why he's number two. You might ask why he's not number one, but it's going to make a lot of sense in two seconds. Conrad, who is number one?
1: The one and only Ricky
2: Henderson. (laughs) The the stats for Ricky Henderson's stolen bases are wild, by the way. But he's also on this postseason list of base stealers. He is one behind, actually, Kenny Lofton um on on postseason stolen bases but far ahead of anybody in the history of the game In stolen bases when ricky henderson gets on base it's a triple it's 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 over with it's a triple it's done you know he's stealing when you think stolen bases when i think steal a base steal a taco i wish ricky henderson was still playing because it'd be automatic And that's what he was. Ricky Henderson was automatic. And that is why he is hands down the easiest decision of all time to be number one on this list. So that wraps up the top fives. This last one, all-time postseason base stealers. Uh, And that is it for top five. Let's get into an extra innings segment. All right, and at the end of every show, I like to do one last little segment. And here it is, extra innings. And it's the interaction between Carlos Correa and Eduardo Rodriguez. What time is it? What time is it to understand more about this? We gotta go back to game one. Game one of this series against the Red Sox. Carlos Correa hits a bomb, super clutch, like I talked about earlier, one of the most clutch postseason performers of all time. Hits a clutch bomb, drops the bat, looks at his dugout and goes, what time is it? It was sick. It was actually really sick. So fast forward, to when we advance to, to Boston. When the series moves to Boston, Eduardo, the Eduardo Rodriguez game where he dominates on the mound, he throws really well. He gets Carlos Correa out a few times. The, the first, one of the first time he gets out, he strikes out, he's walking back to the dugout, and this fan in the stands pointed at his watch. What time is it, Carlos? What time is it? I love that. And then to end Eduardo Rodriguez is outing, walking off the mound. A dominant performance on the day. Cora on the top steps of the dugout cheering for him. The crowd going nuts. He looks at Correa, who he just got out, and does the same thing. Hey, Correa, what time is it? I love it. I love it. Alex Cora loses his mind on him, by the way. He says, no, get in here. What are you doing? I love this entire interaction. I love Correa doing it. I love the fan doing it. I love Rodriguez doing it. I love how Alex Cora handled it by yelling at him, saying, no, get in the dugout. This whole interaction is so good for baseball. It is, this is exactly what the sport needs. We like bad flips. We like drama. We like players celebrating. We like other players doing their celebration back at them, and that's what happened here This series has been awesome. The interactions between the players has been awesome, and especially this Carlos Correa and Eduardo Rodriguez interaction. So, what time is it? It's time to wrap this thing up. What an incredible show this was. Again, AJ Hinch, thank you so much for joining me. That was awesome. One of the best managers in all of baseball. It was awesome to talk to him. If you guys are not yet subscribed to the podcast, check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you rate it five stars. Subscribe, follow, all that good stuff. We do have social medias as well. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all that good stuff, at Pod. So check all of that out. And I will see you next time on Flippin' Bats.
0: It's a ball Hit eight inning, 10-3. Faces are loaded for Verlander, who waits out a the real finish. He swings, and it's a high-fly ball. Deep center field. It is gone. Home run. And a huge bat to celebrate.